Hey, everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. All right, so if, you're, if you have your Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're gonna spend this entire series in that book. Um, to get started, I wanna tell you a little story about when I was uh, going into seventh grade, uh, at that time, seventh grade through 12th was all one thing at our church. It was a long time ago. We had one youth department, seventh through 12th grade. And at that time, we would go yearly to this uh, youth conference in Fort Worth, Texas. The church had done that for decades. And there were two really fun things that you got to do when you went to this youth conference. On the way, on the last day, before you came home, you got to go to Six Flags Over Texas, which was a lot of fun. On the way down, though, we would go to this place um, the first night before we even got down there to the conference, and it was a place called Casa Bonita. Anybody heard of Casa Bonita before? Oh, okay. <laughs> Some of y'all are real excited about that. You must have gone a different time than I did. But anyway, I, um, I was really excited at the time because all I had to go on was what all the other teenagers in the youth group were telling me, and they were telling me this place was amazing. If you, have a, if you don't have the experience of being at Casa Bonita, what it was, it was, it was a Mexican restaurant, it was multi-level, they had shows they did in the middle of the restaurant, and, uh, but all the way around all the eating area were arcade games, video games, any, any kind of arcade game you could imagine, they had at Casa Bonita. And uh, so I kept hearing about how great this was. Now, I didn't grow up going to arcades. There was nothing, not that we had any problem with it, there was nothing wrong with it, it's just we didn't have a lot of spare money for that kind of thing. So this was something I was very excited about. And so all summer long, I had no job, I just saved up the little bits that I would get and I put it in a jar, and that was my Casa Bonita money, and I couldn't wait to go to Casa Bonita. I wasn't really excited about Six Flags because back then I wasn't a roller coaster enthusiast. I am now, but I wasn't then. <laughs> um, and so I was, Casa Bonita was like my really exciting part of this trip, and I remember taking that change to the bank and getting it changed into bills and going, getting off that bus, and here's what I remember. I remember that going off that, getting off that bus and walking into Casa Bonita, I had very high expectations. This is gonna be amazing, and I was ready to make a major investment. I had a lot of, you know, as a seventh grader, this was my life savings from a jar, right? This is gonna be my Casa Bonita money. I was very, very excited. Then I went in there, and it wasn't bad. I wasn't trying to say Casa Bonita was bad. It, it wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. And I played lots of games. I enjoyed it. I went through it. How many of you know in an arcade, the money does go kind of quickly, right? I went through it pretty fast. And I remember getting back on the bus without my money and thinking, was that it? You ever have that feeling like you had high expectations going into something, you're ready to invest in a lot, and then after it's over, you realize, wow, that was a big disappointment. Like, I invested a lot, I expected a lot, now I'm on the other side of it, and I didn't really get much out of it, but I sure spent a lot on it, right? Some of y'all are like, you're talking about my car, right? Like, I spent a lot on it, but I didn't get much out of it, you know? Um, but there are things like that that are in life, and really, it's one of the things that sometimes can cause us to start to get really depressed. The bigger the thing, the bigger the depression. When I get on the other side of it, I'm like, wow, I have, sometimes, it's one thing we're talking about a little trip to Casa Bonita. It's a whole other thing we're talking about 15 years of your career. And you get to the other side of that 15 years, and you go, I had high expectations, and I put a lot into it, but I didn't get a lot out of it. Then the depression starts to be kind of a big deal. 
when we get to the book of Ecclesiastes, we're reading what Solomon has to say about his season of depression coming off of high expectation, lots of investment, huge disappointment, and we're actually gonna read, in my opinion, what I, from a psychological perspective, I think that at the time that Solomon writes this, he is absolutely in the midst of major depression. I think he's absolutely dealing with depression. Not only that, Solomon is getting away from God. Let, let me give you a little bit of background here. Solomon is the third king of Israel, right? Uh, David was his dad. David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. Solomon uh, was, was a good king, at least for uh, uh, the majority, the beginning of his reign. When Solomon came to uh, power, he was basically a kid. He had older brothers, and by rights, usually one of his older brothers would have ended up being king, but God had selected Solomon, and, and David had promised it to Solomon, at least that's how it looks from the scripture, and so Solomon became the new king, but he was a kid, and Solomon had an interaction with God in a dream, and, and Solomon had an opportunity to ask God for anything that he wanted, and he asked for an understanding heart. He asked for wisdom. And God was so impressed that he didn't ask for riches and he didn't ask for fame that God gave him wisdom. The Bible says that he was the wisest man that ever lived. God gave him that wisdom, but God also gave him the other stuff that he didn't ask for because he was so impressed with what he asked for. He gave him the, the riches and the, um, and the fame. So Solomon had, in many respects, a, a good life. Toward the end of his life, he got in a little bit of trouble. Part of it was Solomon had been to a lot of weddings, most of them his. Um, he had married 700 women. I'm a statistician, so I'll break that down for you. That's 100 ladies every day, right? Um, but that apparently wasn't enough, as you'll see here shortly. He also had 300 concubines, which were really women that were there for his sexual pleasure beyond the 700 he was already married to. That is now 1,000 women in his life. That, that's, that's a lot. I mean, most of us guys aren't romantic enough to, to be with one lady. Like, we need to work on our romance just to come up to the bar to be with one lady. Imagine trying to be romantic enough for 1,000 ladies, right? That's a lot of birthdays to remember, y'all. But so Solomon is, the, the thing is, not only was, by the way, it's not God's plan. I've yet to find a place in scripture where it worked out well for one person to be married to an, more than one other person. God didn't create Adam and 300 other women. God created Adam and Eve. It was, it was not what God intended. It always created problems. And in this case, one of the problems it created was Solomon was marrying women from other cultures who had other gods. And when he got married to them, he wasn't just developing loyalty to them. He was developing loyalty to their gods. And so now he was in a strained relationship with God because of this. And the Bible says they, they drew his heart away from him. We'll talk uh, from, from God. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. So when we get to Ecclesiastes, I gotta be honest with you, Solomon is in the process of losing his way. He's in the process of, of, honestly, of getting away from God. And he's gonna become fixated on what he sees happening around him in the world. Over and over in the, in the book, especially depending on which translation you have, you'll see he keeps saying, under the sun. This is how it is under the sun. This is what I observed under the sun. What he's saying is, my focus is on this world around me, here's what I'm noticing, and it's not good, right? Ecclesiastes is like the journal of a depressed person. I've seen pastors try to preach out of Ecclesiastes like you can take every verse and make it unilateral truth. Uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. There is truth for us to gain from Ecclesiastes and God has, has embedded truth into it. But when we look at what Solomon has to say, one of the things that's very clear is some of the things that Solomon is saying is not true and some of the things that Solomon's saying are destructive thoughts, but he's giving us the self-talk of what he's thinking in this depressed way, place. And I gotta be honest with you, I'm thankful that the Bible doesn't whitewash that. 
I'm thankful that the Bible tells us, hey, sometimes this is what it's like when you look at the world around you. Sometimes these are the kinds of things that you're gonna feel. I'm appreciative that when you open the Bible, it's not just pipe organ and stained glass. We can read Ecclesiastes and see what it's like to go through a tough time. So that's what we're gonna go through. Can I give you a, a flight plan? Week one, this week we're gonna talk about Solomon's great experiment because he was trying to find fulfillment, he was trying to find happiness, he was trying to find something that would make him feel whole and so he experimented with just about everything. We're gonna talk about that here shortly. Week two, the, the title is, um, when I think about it, it bothers me, or I think I just got that backwards. It bothers me when I think about it. Actually, the bulk of Ecclesiastes is Solomon talking about unfairness that he sees in the world around him, talking about things that just don't seem right that he sees and saying, how, how can I square this in my head? That's why I named the talk, It Bothers Me When I Think About It, because there are some things that we try to just sort of block out of our head. I know it's, that's not fair. How could this happen in the world that I live in? I just don't even wanna think about it, but when I do think about it, it really bothers me. We're gonna talk about that next week. Third week, we're gonna talk about one little glimmer of hope that happens at the end of Ecclesiastes. Keep in mind, Ecclesiastes is being written at the end of Solomon's life. He's, he's a little bit of a mess now. But there's a little glimmer of hope at the end where he kind of comes back to his, what he knows is true. And we'll talk about that because ultimately, Solomon, Solomon was almost onto something at the very end of the book. And we need to really grasp onto that and realize, no, we need to take this and actually use it in our lives. He was almost there, but we need to get there. We need to make sure that when we get in these moments where we kind of go through a difficult time and we worry about the world around us and we don't feel fulfilled, we need to find the path. And by the way, in order to do that, that means while we're gonna talk about Ecclesiastes, we're also gonna go to some other passages in the Bible that can really address what Solomon is saying in his sort of self-talk. All right, so um, we're gonna talk about, let me, let me uh, move on to the great experiment because I think I talked a little bit about who Solomon is. Again, he was a guy who was very wise. How many of us know that you can be wise and not use your wisdom, yeah. right? Here's, here's the thing. I've talked to a lot of people who've made really, really dumb decisions who knew better. That, that breaks my heart even more than anything. That it's, it's, it's a heartbreaker when, I know the right, when I'm wise enough to know the right thing, but I don't do the wise thing. And that's unfortunately what we're getting ready to take a tour through. We're gonna take a tour through Solomon being wise enough to know what he should do and not, not doing it. Uh, so let's go to the, the part where he says, here's the experiment that I decided to try. This is a Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1 if you're, in, if, if you're in Ecclesiastes. He said, I said to myself, so he's having a little talk with himself, he said, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. And that's the, be in the beginning of the book he says, here's what I figured out. I figured out everything is meaningless. How's that for depression? <laughs> figured out nothing really matters, right? And he says, I'll tell you one of the things I found out that doesn't matter. I found out that the good things in life don't matter. He said, uh, I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? So after much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. He said, well, you know, I, I tried silliness and silliness didn't do it for me. So then I thought, well, I'll get real silly and I'm just gonna drink a whole lot, right? Because I, I see people drink a whole lot and they look a lot. I mean, you ever have one of those experiences where you go, I know I'm doing the wise thing, but the people that are doing the foolish thing look like they're having a lot more fun than I am, you know? So maybe if I did what the foolish people are doing, I'd have more fun than what I'm doing over here on the wise side. And he says, and while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. Now this is an interesting thought. He's saying, I'm a wise person. I, I don't wanna lose that. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang on to my wisdom as much as I can, but I'm gonna reach over here into foolishness a little bit because that looks like fun. So I'm, I'm gonna try to make sure I don't lose my smarts. But while I'm doing this, how many of us know this doesn't work? How many of us have done that with a friend? 
I know it's not smart to hang out with this person. I'm, gonna not, I'm not gonna quit being a smart person, but I also know, I'm, you know, if I want what I want, I need to be able to reach over here. I need to be able to reach over here with substances, or I need to reach over here in entertainment. I'm gonna hold on to my wisdom, and I'm definitely gonna have it when I go to church, and I'm definitely gonna have it when I'm around people that respect me, but privately, away from all that, I'm gonna reach over here into foolishness because it looks like a lot more fun. That's what Solomon said he was gonna do. He said in this way, and how's this for a depressed self-talk? I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. (laughs) It's a little fatalistic. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes. So after the substances, after that, he's like, well, you know, maybe it's all about status, you know? I mean, I just, I need to really prove who I am in this world. And that was really what building large buildings was about in the ancient world. It wasn't so much about possessions as it was to prove to people who you were. Like, if you had big buildings, then you were a person of status. And so I'm gonna build huge homes. And when people see it and they call it Solomon's house, then I'll, I'll feel something because people will look at it and know I've, I've, I have arrived. How many of us know that when you arrive, you're not there long? You build the house, and for a day or two you feel like you've arrived, and then after that it wears off. You buy the fancy car you've been dreaming of, and it feels like you've arrived, you drive it around town, then you go to the gas pump and you realize it doesn't last long. (laughs) Whatever it is that feels like this is gonna be status, the job, how many of us have been like, if I could ever get that job, if I could ever have their job, I will have arrived, and then you get their job and you go, why did I want this job? What on earth made me want this job? He said, well, then, then I thought, maybe it's aesthetic things. Maybe it's beauty. I, I need some beauty around me. Like, I, I, need some, I need zen. I need to just really get into the zone. So he said, I, I, you know, I planted beautiful vineyards, and I made gardens and parks, and I filled them with all kinds of fruit trees. Maybe if I just have, maybe if I can drink in the beauty of nature, and there's nothing wrong with that, but may, maybe if I did that, that would make me feel whole, you know, but I think after a while he just was like, but I'm sitting here in this garden, I don't know what to do, you know? He said, and then here's an interesting one. Eventually, if you try to make your life mean something with stuff, and that, by the way, is the U.S., United States condition of our lives, we try to make our life mean something with stuff. If you do that, you will eventually have to spend your life maintaining the stuff that you've gotten in order to find meaning. You know what I mean? My dad always likes to say, in July, there's the greatest transfer of of U.S. wealth uh, every every year, and that's the garage sale season, right? Stuff that you you once thought was worth 100 bucks and you spent 100 bucks on it is now, you know, $1.50 in your garage. Just take it, make it go away, right? Things that, because after a while we realize, I have to maintain this. If I keep this, I have to keep buying stuff for it, and I have to keep doing stuff. He said, so I built reservoirs to collect water to irrigate those gardens I built. This is also against God's plan, but he said, I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. This, now we're getting into money. I also own large herds and flocks, uh, and I had large sums of silver and gold. So both of those were things you could negotiate with. So he's like, I, you know, money wasn't an issue for me. I really lived the life where I could go around saying money is no object. Have you ever wished you could do that? You ever wish you could go around, and whenever you were shopping for something, you could tell whoever you were shopping with money is no object. I just, I want the best, money's no, and he's saying, I I was able to do that. I was able to constantly say, money is no object. 
He said, I hired wonderful singers. He said, maybe it's about entertainment. Maybe I just don't have the best entertainment. Maybe if I was really entertained, then I would have wholeness in life. He said, so I hired the singers, men and women. And then he said, maybe it's about sex. Maybe I just don't have enough sex. I have 700 wives, but maybe I just don't have enough sex, you know? So he says, I got many beautiful concubines. He said, I had everything a man could desire, so I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me. This is the experiment. This is the hypothesis. I'm a social science researcher, so I'm always interested in what is the hypothesis. The hypothesis was, I will get myself anything that I want, and by doing that, I will love life. If I, if I give myself anything, if I never say no to myself, if I always am able to get whatever it is I want, I will love life. Look at how this works. He says, anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. So here's the hypothesis. If I do that, I will love life. Look at what he said. He said, therefore, I came to hate life. He said, I gave myself anything I wanted. I ended up hating life. I never said no to myself. I ended up hating life. I had all the stuff. I, I had so much stuff, I didn't know what to do. I had so many people, I, I had so many women in my life, uh, I didn't know who to sit with. I had so much stuff going on in my life, I, 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 could, I, kept, I could keep myself busy for 200 years. And you know what? I ended up hating life. But we shouldn't be surprised by that. That's what keeps the tabloids in business. You walk know, by the tabloids, and there's something almost in your spirit that goes, well, at least I know if I had all the stuff the rich and famous people have, at least I know it doesn't mean I wouldn't have trouble because they seem to have plenty of trouble. People with all the money, the people with all the fame, the people that get their faces in the magazines. Turns out they've got just as much trouble as the rest of us. The truth is, stuff will not make you whole. Sex will not make you whole. Entertainment will not make you whole. Accomplishments, achievements will not make you whole. You weren't designed by God to be made whole by the things of this world. It's a huge, important thing to learn from Ecclesiastes. Solomon keeps saying, under the sun, this is how it is. Under the sun, this is how it is. What he's saying is, in this world, if you're looking for the things of this world to make you whole, you're gonna end up with lots of expectations, lots invested, and big disappointment. He's saying the good life turned out to be a troubling life. How many of us know that? We live in if not the richest country in the world, we live in one of the richest countries in the world, and yet we're troubled. I mean, if money and wealth and stuff made us mentally healthy, we would not have a mental health care shortage in the United States. We would not be trying to figure out how to get more therapists, and we are. We would not be trying to figure out how to get more psychologists trained and more psychiatrists, and we are. The reason is because we are a mentally unhealthy culture, even though we are rich. Do you remember what we talked about in the Revelation series? You have, you have uh, it says, you think that you're rich, but you're poor. And that is what, that's what's being said here. You, you know, Solomon's saying, look, on paper, I've got everything I could possibly want. But in my heart, I know I'm broken. I don't know who I'm talking to in this room that says, you know, truthfully, if it's on paper, I actually look like I'm doing all right. But if you were able to see how I'm doing on the inside, you'd know I'm in a little bit of a crisis. Well, that's where Solomon was. You know the U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Right, we're gonna do that before the series is over, by the way. <laughs> it could have come straight from Ecclesiastes. Check this out, 728. Though I have searched repeatedly, I have not found what I was looking for. Someone said, I haven't found it. Now, here's what's interesting. It's interesting for him to use that turn of the phrase, I haven't found what I was looking for. Bible scholars tell us that that indicates to us that he didn't know what to put there. 
He didn't know, he didn't know whether to say, I haven't found wholeness. He didn't know, I haven't found, I, I, you know, I haven't found fulfillment. I haven't found happiness. It literally gives us the impression that he's saying, I'm looking for something. I don't know what it is. I've tried all kinds of stuff. One thing I know is none of the things that I've tried are what I'm looking for. I don't know who it is that I'm talking to in the room who would say, I'm looking for something. Haven't, I, I don't know what it is. I've tried an awful lot of things. None of them have seemed to fit the bill. And I'm now sitting at a place in my life where I'm going, I know I'm still searching, but I couldn't even tell somebody what it is I'm looking for if they asked me. The one thing that we can all agree on is deep down we know we're searching for something. Keeps the self-help book business running, you know? Not that I'm against self-help books. I wrote one this year. It's coming out next year. But it's, a, it's an industry, folks. I mean, here's the deal. Self-help books, right, the industry has doubled in the last 10 years. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I just told you wrong. It's tripled in the last 10 years. It is over a $10 billion business. And do you know what keeps the self-help book world in business, we're all searching for stuff. We're all trying to figure stuff out. I walked through the aisle of a self-help section and I found books about how do you have better relationships? How do you get more money? How do you find a better job? How do you have better health? How do you figure out a clear life path? How do you develop status in life? Build a platform. And that's just a few. You know what I'm talking about when I say I could have made a list of hundreds of things because ultimately people know if I write this book, people will buy it because they walk into the bookstore searching for something. I remember I was at a counseling conference and uh, at these conferences, they have breakout sessions where they talk about specific counseling things you may have to encounter and what you might need to do with it. And I went to this counseling session was talking about helping couples form goals in counseling, which was interesting to me. I thought, well, I'll go to this and I'll learn. And uh, the lady doing the seminar said, now here's the thing. She said, most couples that come to see me don't even know what it is they want. He doesn't know what he wants. She doesn't know what she wants. Our first thing is to figure out what is it that they want. And that stuck with me. And I went home, and this has been maybe six, seven years ago. I had a, a drawer full of forms that people had filled out to come in and see me. And I thought, I'm gonna flip through my forms and see whether see what people were saying they wanted when they came in. Because I actually asked the question, what do you want to get out of this? It was one of the things I asked. And the, the, the things people wanted were as varied as the list I just gave you and more. You know, I want him to, res you know, I want him to respect me. I, I want her to talk to me in a more polite way. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff all over the place. But you know what? I, I came to the conclusion that there was one thing in common with what all of them were saying in their forums. And that was, in each of our hearts, there's a longing for true peace. We just want peace. There, I, I used the word wholeness before. There's a word in, in Hebrew that, that is sort of like a, a wholeness piece, a well piece, a healthy piece, and the word is shalom. And it's, it's become part of, a, part of a Middle Eastern greeting that goes back to ancient times. There is a sense in which there is an understanding that shalom is the, the best thing you could wish somebody, more than anything else, to wish them a healthy, whole peace. And somehow God has placed within the heart of man a need to be at peace. And I believe that before sin entered the world, human beings were at peace. We know that there was an emotional shift in human beings when sin entered the world. That's why the Bible says that Adam and Eve felt shame. There was suddenly an emotional shift in their mindset. Up until that time, there was what? There was peace. There was shalom. What is Solomon telling us? The first point in his book is this. I was searching for peace. I tried all the things. None of them worked. 
search for peace, tried all the things, none of them worked. Why is that important? It's important because most of us in this room cannot try all the things. We will never get to where Solomon was. We will, most of us in this room will never be able to walk into a shopping mall and decide that we want pretty much everything in it and just say, okay, I'm gonna buy them all. It's all mine now, the whole thing, just lock, sock, and barrel. Like, Solomon could have done that. He could have walked in and just said, it's all mine, right? We'll, we'll never have unlimited sex like Solomon did. We'll never have the best entertainment like Solomon did because whoever was the best he could get. Like he had no limits. He never had to tell himself no. Most of us are never gonna get to that point, but we can learn from somebody who was at that point because he said, just so you know, if you think that would make you happy, it won't. He said, because I did those things and I ended up hating life. So what can we learn about what Solomon's experience was with his great experiment. Like I said, next week we'll talk about Solomon's struggle with the fairness of, of life, but what can we learn from what Solomon went through with his experiment? Well, let's, let's go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Here, John says, do not love this world nor the things it offers you, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Let's break this down, because there's a lot happening in this verse. First of all, some of you might say, now Jonathan, this is hard for me because I love nature and I love, you know, I go to the Grand Canyon and I, I just, man, that's energizing to me and I love that and I love a beautiful Kansas sunset and I, I love the flowers and, you know, so there are lots of things about this world that I really, that's not what this is talking about. God's creation is beautiful and it is a wonderful thing to enjoy that and that's a scriptural for us to enjoy God's creation. This, here where it says this world, we get our, our word cosmos from that Greek word and basically what it means is the world system, the way things work in this world. Right? So what, what the scripture is saying here is don't fall in love with this world system. Don't fall in love with the way things work here and don't fall in love with the pervasive way that things operate in the world, nor the things it offers you. And we'll talk here in a minute about what those things are. But the Bible is making sure we understand that like the arcade can offer you some fun for a few minutes, the world is gonna offer you some temporary fun, but there's gonna be a long-term price tag. We'll talk about that in a minute. It says, when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Now, what does that mean? That, that's a tough one. When you, when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. That has to do with priorities in your life. What, what the verse is saying is this. If you put the world in the front seat, you will force God into the back seat. It's saying, look, if you become enamored with the way things work in this world, you will absolutely have to put God on the back burner. Because the way God works and the way this world works are not compatible. The scripture is clear. I cannot fall in love with how God does things and also be in love with how the world does things. I literally can't do it. I have to make a choice. Do I love how God does things or do I love how the world does things? The Bible says, if I try to be loyal to both, I will be unstable. The Bible says a double-minded man, a person who decides to be loyal to God and the world, is unstable in everything that he does. Never has the pressure to do this been more substantial than it is now. Because we're not only in a world that says, hey, love the world system because it's cool. Now we're in a world that says, love the world system or you're a bigot. Love the world system or you're a harmful individual. Love the world system or you're a hateful person. And suddenly it's almost like maybe I need to put God in the back seat in order to be a good person. 
Maybe I need to put God in the back seat in order to have peace with others. But Solomon will tell you, if you put God in the back seat, all you will have to stare at is the way this world works. And when you look at the way this world works, you will be depressed and you'll just pull over to the side of the road. Now, when it says love, not the world, it's an interesting word for love. A few different words in the Greek for love. This word is agape. It's an interesting choice for this particular passage. Agape is usually something we look at very positively, right? We talk about the importance of agape love in relationships. Why? Because agape love is a sacrificial love. It is a love that puts the other first. So what does it mean in this case? Agape love, is a, uh, it means I've become deeply fond of it, I'm strongly loyal to it, and I'm willing to sacrifice for it. So if, I'm, if I am falling in love with the world with agape love, it means I'm very fond of the way things work in this world. I'm strongly loyal to this world. So I'm not going to, if, if the way that everybody says things should be is this, I'm gonna be loyal to the way that people say things should be. And then ultimately, if I have to make a sacrifice, my sacrifice is gonna be whatever I have to get rid of in order to be in, in, in compatibility with the world that I'm in. Versus to love God means I'm very fond of God, I'm strongly loyal to God, and I'm willing to sacrifice for my relationship with God. And what the Bible's telling us is you do have to choose. They're not in the same camp. I don't think it's ever been more apparent before that the God that we serve and the world that we live in are not in the same camp. We have to make a choice. By the way, speaking of that, that manifested itself in Solomon's life in terms of his women. First Kings 11, the Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them. He's talking about people of pagan cultures with other gods because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Um, yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. Now this is so important and it may be the most important thing that I have to say here. If you fall in love with the world system, you will end up attached to something that will pull your heart away from God. I know just because of the numbers here, I'm talking to some folks in this room, you would do anything to get close to God except turn loose of the thing that you are attached to. But you know if it meant getting close, you know that in order to get close to God, you would have to turn loose to something that you've become attached to. And that thing, it now kind of owns you because it blocks you from becoming close to the God that you love. That when it says they turned his heart away from the Lord, it's an interesting, it's, it's yet again another thing that, that Bible translators struggle with because it actually, the word means to stretch away. It means to, isn't that an interesting thought? It means that, that because he needed to be loyal to the gods that his wives brought, gods with a small g, that, that, that they brought into his life, loving God became more and more of a stretch. See, there are some things in this world that if we fall in love with it, loving God is gonna be more and more of a stretch. It's not that we don't wanna love God. It's not that we don't have the intent to love God. It's not that we, aren't that we don't wanna be loyal to God. It's just that we're attached to something that makes loving God more and more difficult. Remember when the verse said, love not the world or the things it offers you. What does the world offer you? Well, let's look at this. This is, we're still in 1 John. It says, for the world offers this, only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. Say, Jonathan, what's wrong with those things? There's nothing inherently wrong with things that are pleasurable. There's nothing inherently wrong with things that are attractive, and there's nothing inherently wrong with achievements. The issue is, if that's all that's on the table, then that's a pretty depressing life. 
There has to be more. I think that's what Solomon's telling us. There's gotta be more. He's saying, I tried, I tried physical pleasure. It was great, but it's temporary. There's gotta be more. He said, I tried achievements, and it was good, but after a while, it wears off, and you need more. He's like, I, I, you know, I, I tried the, the whatever's attractive I take, whatever I think I want, I just take it. And you know what, for a while, that's good, but eventually that high wears off. There's gotta be more. It's not that these things are bad, it's that there's gotta be more than that. It says, these are not from the Father, but are from the world. And this world is fading away. That's what the Bible says. That's the problem. The problem is whatever the world gives you is vanishing as you get it. This world is in the process of vanishing. And whatever the world gives you is also in the, pro- is also in the, the, the process of vanishing. So nothing that this world can give you is going to be permanent. By the way, Satan has always been in the business of trying to do this. Even back to the Garden of Eden. Satan was trying to get Adam and Eve to go with a temporary high that was gonna have an eternal price tag. That's his thing, he wants to get you on a temporary high. He, he's always been in the business of trading temporary highs for true peace. I'll give, you, I'll give you this high instead of peace, and the high looks so attractive that we go for it, in the meantime, suddenly we have that, that uneasiness in our spirit that goes, wait, what did I just give up? Satan, is a, he's a drug dealer. He wants to get you hooked on something that is hard to acquire, wears off quickly and that you'll have to keep coming back for. Because if he does that, here's here's what happens. If he does that, you will be distracted from what God wants to do in your life. If he gets you addicted and your life becomes about finding the next high on the journey that you're on, and I'm not necessarily talking about drugs. Drugs is a good example, but it could be be the high of success. It could be the high of sex. It could be the high of entertainment, whatever it is. If he gets you hooked on it, your life will become about continuing to get that high over and over again. It's gonna get harder and harder to hit that high. And then as a result, meanwhile, you'll be distracted from what God is trying to tell you. Hey, this is what I have for you to do. This is my purpose for your life. It could actually give you wholeness. It could give you peace but we won't hear it because we'll be so addicted to trying to get to that next high that Satan puts in our path. Keep in mind, Satan cannot take your eternal destiny away from you, right? Satan cannot take your eternal destiny away from you. So once you are one of God's children, the the worst thing he can do is antagonize you and try to make you unproductive. He'll do that with distraction. See, the thing is, peace happens when you find Peace is about finding. Satan wants to keep you looking. Satan wants your whole life to be about looking for the next thing. God wants it to be about finding. And there are so many verses that show that God is all about, hey, I want you to find life. I want, the Bible says that he stands at the, door, the heart, the, at the door of our heart and knocks, and that if we open the door, guess what we're gonna find? We're gonna find that God is standing there. God wants us to find peace. He wants us to find wholeness. He wants us to find fulfillment. He wants us to find happiness. But in order to do that, we have to be willing to set aside what this world is gonna offer us. And here's the deal. We know this from Satan's temptation of Jesus. The more you resist his, his temptation, the more he'll up the offer. Sometimes people ask me, Jonathan, these pastors that get in trouble, what's up with that? Well, I I don't think any case is exactly the same. Uh, Sometimes I think it's that somebody really is a a huckster. I I think they really have pulled the wool over everybody's eyes and and they're living a fake life. But I, I think that's the vast minority. 
for the majority of times, what I think happens is Satan sees somebody who is winning people to Christ. Satan sees somebody who is making a difference in the world and Satan just keeps up in the ante. I'll offer you this, I'll offer you this, I'll offer you this. And eventually, suddenly for that pastor or for that leader, the things the world is offering seem better than what they have and they go for it. Remember how I said, Satan is gonna offer you a temporary high for any, that's gonna have an eternal consequence. It's not gonna, that pastor who makes that decision, I'm not saying it's gonna have an eternal consequence in the, in the idea that they're not gonna go to heaven when they die, but it will impact eternity because of the people that they are ministering to who will now look at Jesus differently because of how they see them. It's a big deal. It's a big deal for all of us. Let's go to the woman at the well for a second, shall we? When Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, it was a really interesting deal. He's going through Samaria, which had been unusual for a Jewish teacher because Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. And he goes to this well, it's the middle of the day, and there is this woman drawing water at the well in the middle of the day. Now that was weird because you didn't do that. The middle of the day in the Middle East is very hot. And so you wouldn't go draw water then. You would draw water later in the evening when it cooled off a little bit. This lady was drawing water because she did not want to see anybody. She didn't want to run into anybody. She had a past. And whenever she was around people from her city, she could hear them whispering about her. And she didn't like that. She liked solitude. Be away from everybody else because she didn't need the headaches and the drama. She'd been married five times. And by the way, this is way more than you want to know. But at the time, there were a lot of people that were using... God is an excuse to play wife swap. Moses had said, if you find fault with your wife, you can, write, you can hand her a writing of divorce and send her away. And, and there was one group of religious teachers saying that that meant if, if she commits adultery, but there was another group that was saying, no, that means any fault that you find with her. If she, you know, if she lets her hair down in public, these are actually things that we have from these ancient documents. If she lets her hair down in public, if you don't like her mother, one of the things, because this was an old English translation, it says, if you find a woman more handsome than she, that's an interesting way to put it, um, then you could give her a writing of divorce. And you could say, God said I can do this. And then this male-dominant culture where women didn't have careers, you were forcing her outside of the home, and now she has to find another person. I can't prove it, but I tend to think that this lady who was at the well had had a pretty rough life. I think she'd been with five guys that had put her out, and she had continually had to find a new partner in order to keep living her life, and now she was living with a guy who wouldn't even marry her. The last thing she needs is to talk to this Jewish teacher who's gonna tell her how bad she is. Do you remember what happens? Jesus said, if you knew who I was, if you knew what I could give you, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. So, so hard for us with our faucets <laughs> to understand this. So I'm gonna, make it, I'm gonna make it a little bit more concrete for you, okay? Imagine you run into Jesus at the gas station. And Jesus says to you, if you knew who I was and what I could do for you, I would give you eternal gasoline and you will never have to come back to this gas station ever again. How would that feel? That's how she feels. She's like, I wouldn't have to come back here again. And he says to her, he says, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. That's the temporariness of what this world offers you. This is what he's trying to say. It has nothing to do with water. He's trying to say, you're used to the way things work in this world and everything this world can give you is temporary. I can give you something better than that. He says, those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It will become a fresh bubbling spring. By the way, this is where the word new spring comes from. This is where the name new spring comes from within them, giving them eternal life. The rest of the story is wonderful, by the way. Because she's worried, well, once he knows my past, this whole conversation's gonna be over. He says, 
She says, I want this water. He says, go get your husband. She said, oh, I knew this was gonna come up. And she said, I'm not married. And Jesus said, yeah, you're right, you're not married. You've been married five times and the guy that you're living with right now isn't your husband. The power of that moment when Jesus doesn't walk away. And she knows, Jesus knows everything about me and he's not walking away. And then you know what? She becomes the first missionary on record. She does. She goes back to her community and tells everybody, I met, I met someone who told me everything I ever did. And actually, I believe when Jesus said the fields are wide under harvest, because Jesus tells the disciples the fields are wide under harvest, I think it's all those guys that she knew running out of that community because now somebody told her, like, he knows everything she did. They don't want to stick around. They're running out. And, and Jesus says, hey, those are the guys we should be going after. Thank God the church is supposed to be a lighthouse and a, and a place where people can come when they're broken. And Jesus said, go after the broken people. That's who we're interested in. What's the message here? Well, we can just go to Jesus' words. This is, this is in the Old Testament, but I, I really think this is the message that Jesus had in the Gospels. It's certainly the message that God gave. Sometimes people make the Old Testament God out to be some sort of cruel person. Let me tell you what. If you think that, you haven't read the Old Testament. Our God has always been a loving God. That's never changed. From day one, our God has always been a loving God. And God says this, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will do what? You'll find. Satan wants to keep you looking. God says, if you come looking for me, guess what? You're gonna find me. You're gonna find me. So how do you look for God? Let's get practical. How do you look for God? Well, Jesus said this in Matthew, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasure in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. You say, oh, Jonathan, so you're saying I give and if I give, then that'll be seeking God. No, it's so much bigger than that. Treasure here is not just about money. I, I think money is implied, but it's so much bigger than that. The Bible's saying whatever energy you have, whatever resources you have, whatever it is that you have in your life, if you will direct it toward God, God will be found. If you, if you, will, if you will direct your energy toward finding God, God is there to be found by you. So many of us say, I wanna find God, but our energy is directed toward this culture. We, I wanna find God, but our, our resources are directed toward this culture. We have, we're investing, we have a very diverse portfolio of investments. We don't even mind investing some in God, but we've invested a lot in a lot of other places, and we're gonna continue to do that, and God is saying, you know what, you'll find me a lot faster if you will put your energy into finding me. If you will loyally say, God is who I'm looking for. I really think we have a promise from the God of the universe that says, I will not let somebody start looking for me and not find me. And what's the promise if we do that? What's the promise if we put our energy into finding God? This is in Isaiah 26. You will what? Keep. That's a permanent word. You will keep in perfect peace. That's what we're all looking for. All who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Those of us who are looking for God, who seek God out, who put our resources into finding God, what does the Bible say? God will make it permanent. Not only will God give you peace, God will lock it in. It's like a fixed mortgage rate. We all want that. Fix it in there, especially as high as the interest is now. Fix that puppy. <laughs> Don't let that move around on me, right? God is saying, I'll fix it for you. I, I, will, I will set it. If you will, if you will fix your heart on me, I will fix peace in your heart. And here's the thing, we need it. In this culture, in this world, with all the things that we go through, we need peace that is permanent and concrete in our hearts. Let me skip through here a little bit so I can finish here on time. 
Matthew 6.33 says this, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. And the reason that I bring this passage up is because somebody will say, now Jonathan, I'm a little bit struck with the idea that if I were to be loyal to God with, with everything, if I was to try to put my energy as much into God as I possibly could, if I tried to undiversify and, and put my energy as much into God as I could, imagine what all I would leave behind. Imagine all the things that would be important that I would let burn on the grill. And God is saying, if you will take care of my business, I'll take care of your business. God's always offered that deal. He's always said, look, if you, come for, if you will seek me out, I will take, it's just like when, when Solomon asked for wisdom and God said, I'm gonna give you the other things. We serve a God who, who wants us to come looking for him and as a, as a loving heavenly father, he'll take care of our needs. Two reasons why it's better to prioritize God over all the things. And like I said, we have the next two weeks and we'll finish out this series, but two reasons why it's really important to prioritize God over all the stuff. Number one, God loves you and he wants the best for you. He is a good, good father. And he wants to do the best for you. My dad told a sermon illustration story. I had to have been eight the last time I heard him tell this story, but it stuck with me. I was a dad in the uh, 1930s, 1940s. Very rich guy, beautifully appointed home. His son wanted a car for graduation and he dropped a lot of not too subtle hints that he wanted a car for graduation and his dad could afford it. He knew his dad could walk right into the dealership, write a check and they could leave with the car. So he kept dropping the hint, dropping the hint, dropping the hint. Came graduation day and his dad came to give him his graduation gift and it was a book. Not only was it a book, it was a used book. It was an old book, right? He knew it was an old book because in the 1800s, mid to late 1800s, when they would print a book, they would not they would, they would not detach the pages at the top. So at the top of each pair of pages, they were still joined and you would have to take a letter opener and, and slice open the two pages you would read through it. So the fact that he could see that the pages weren't separated told him this book is old. And he thought, I cannot believe my dad gave me this for graduation present. So he tossed it in his room when he got up there and he said, well, I'm just gonna earn my own car. I'm just gonna buy my own car. So all summer long, he tried to earn money, tried to buy a car, just couldn't work it out. He just got more and more mad. Last day of summer, he went up to his dad and he said, I cannot believe, I, to I told you I wanted a car for graduation. I kept saying it over and over. I thought you would get the hint. You gave me this old book for graduation. I know you could get me a car. And he sort of cut and loose at his dad. And his dad said, well, did you read the book? And he said, well, not all of it. And he said, bring me the book. So he brings his dad the book and his dad turns to the last page, takes the letter opener and slices open the last two pages and in it there's a, a voucher for a new car at the dealership. And he says, let's go get your car. And here's the thing. We serve a God who says, follow my instructions and if you follow my instructions, there's a payoff. If you will do what I ask you to do. Because he says, look, th this is such an interesting thing. He said, you, if you being evil know how to do good things for your kids, imagine what God wants to do for you but we need to read the book. We need to start by doing what he asked us to do. That's when his intentions become most apparent to us. And the second thing is this, God is able to help you. If you'll let him, God is able to help you. Last story, I'm already in overtime, I'll finish this quickly. It was in California a few years ago. Um, 
and uh, it was some conference. And I went to the mall to buy some souvenirs, bring home to the girls, something I try to do when I travel. And I was at the mall and eating a pretzel. And I, I, right by the food court, there were these lockers where you could put stuff in temporarily. And I saw this guy come over and he had some sort of mall sack and he put his coins in and you, you set the, the code with these little dials and he set the number, put his stuff in there, closed the door, left. And I was just finishing up with my pretzel when he came back to get his stuff. And then I noticed what he was doing, which made me just sort of sit there and watch him. I know that's terribly impolite, but I'm really just watching what he's doing now because he kept moving each, he kept moving the first one, just, just one number and pulling on the thing and then moving at another number and pulling on the thing. And so he saw me looking at him. I wasn't that far from him. And he said, I forgot the code. And I said, oh, yeah? He's like, but I figure there can only be nine, 999 possible codes. So eventually I'm gonna hit it. I just, I couldn't leave. I was really mesmerized by this. And I, I swear to you, I think this guy got up to like the 400s. And there was this little label down on the bottom that says, if you have problems with the lockers, please see the attendant at the customer service desk. And I think he finally saw that. So he walks away and he comes back with a customer service attendant and she walks right up to it. She has a little key and she pops it open. And she says, anytime you have problems, just let us know. I have the master key. I wonder how many times have I been at the lockers in life if I could just get the right combination, if I could just get the right opportunity or have the right person help me or have the right situation open up. If, if this could just work, then I, I know this would unlock for me. And there is a God in heaven that says, why don't you just come and talk to me about it? Because I have the master key. I can, I can do something about your situation, but if you're determined to stand there and try to unlock it yourself, be my guest, but if you really want some traction, why don't you come and talk to me about it? We serve a good, good father who says, I wanna help you. I'm here to help you. I want the best for you. Seek me first. If all you do is seek what the world can give you, it's gonna be really temporary. High expectations, big investment, big disappointment. He's saying, I'm here to offer you something different. I'm here to offer you peace, real peace that could change your life. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for the time that we've spent together tonight and for the fact that you do offer us peace. Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. If you're in this room and you say, you know what, Jonathan, <clears throat> that kind of peace is not part of my life right now and I'm, I'm really struggling. As you talk, I think, I really need whatever it is that you're talking about. I, I want you to know that God has done all the heavy lifting that there is to do. He's done everything to have a relationship with you except say yes, because if he said yes for you, it wouldn't be a relationship. A forced relationship is no relationship at all. But he knows you can't do anything more than that. You can't be perfect. He knows that you can't undo the past. He's waiting for you to say, yes, I want a relationship with you. And, and if that's something you wanna do right now, I wanna help you. I'm gonna say the words to a very simple prayer that calls out to the all-powerful God of the universe and says, I wanna be your adopted child. And if you wanna do that right now, we can do it together. I'm gonna say the words to that prayer right now. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died and came back to life for me. I know I do wrong things. I understand that I can't get to heaven on my own. Today, I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus, and I wanna follow you in your name.
amen. Hey, look this way just for a second. If you just prayed that prayer with me, you just made the most important decision in your life. We wanna help you get started in that new journey. You can text PRAY to 97000 and we'll get you all the details of, of some things that we wanna give you or you could just go right to guest services. They have a box they'd love to give you um, to get you started in your new walk with God. Thanks for being here. Next week, we'll continue on with Arcade. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.